You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We are back in our confession this morning, the Westminster Confession. Um, on paper, we are on chapter 22, but this is misleading because we're going to spend 95% of our time in chapter 21, finishing up all that we didn't get to last week. So we're really in chapter 21. Um, we have, uh, are there any hymnals sitting around for extra copies of the confession? If you have an, a hymnal, hold, hold it up. We have one in the back. Does anybody need? Um, Oh, not an extra. We'll keep it down. People will steal it. Um, does anybody else need a copy of the confession? Yes. All right. And there's one more here. Anybody else? Okay. Um, yeah. Does anybody need more? We can get more out of the sanctuary. I think we're okay. I think we're good. Um, again, I'll encourage you to bring your own or look on a, uh, pull it up on your phone. There's some great apps that have the Westminster Confession and other similar documents. Um, so uh, we will be looking at that. Again, we're in mostly in chapter 21, a couple resources, all these great systematic theologies. Um, I'm re- recapitulating most of what I had up here last week. Um, this great little book with reverence and awe by Daryl Hart and John Meather. Uh, they're both ruling elders or elders in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, they're, they're very good. And so this is a, a good introduction to these topics of worship and the Sabbath. Um, Michael Horton, of course, uh, that book by J.V. Fesco, um, The Theology of the Westminster Standards, the two great chapters on what we're talking about. Uh, this um, article, it's available online. We have it in our, um, in our library as well, this, in this journal called The Confessional Presbyterian, um, about the recreations clause that we um, are going to mention today, um, and uh, somewhat controversial, and so it's a great article outlining some of the biblical basis for this. And then uh, this is a new article by, um, that I didn't have up last week, an article by John Payne called Recovering the Lost Treasure of Lord's Day Evening Worship. Um, and this was published by the Gospel Reformation Network, um, and I think it's actually a republication of, he had published this at Modern Reformation in the early 2000s or something like that. Um, but you can find it online. It's a, a wonderful little article about why we love evening worship, and we'll touch on that this evening, or this, this, uh, in this hour. And uh, it's just an encouragement why evening worship is so healthy and wonderful and why we encourage everyone to participate and be a part of that. Um, all right, so those are our resources. Uh, this is our chapter. So let's turn to the chapter 21 this morning, and we will pick up in section five. Chapter 21 is this chapter on religious worship and the Sabbath day. And a quick recap of some of the, the things we talked about last week. Um, we, we touched on, um, for a little bit, we talked about the regulative principle of worship. Uh, would somebody like to uh, remind us what the regulative principle of worship is? What is I'm sorry, did somebody? Scripture. Scripture? That's right. So Scripture regulates what we do in worship. 
uh, our worship is regulated by God's word. We do, we worship God according to what he has told us to do in worship. This is called the regulative principle, and it's, uh, it's talked about early on in this chapter. Um, we talk, touched on a couple of things, um, and I don't want to rehash all of this, but a couple of things um, that are um, in our world, jarring to hear. I'll say that. Even in the broad Christian culture, they're jarring. Um, mentioned uh, the text says there's no images uh, to be used in worship. So we don't use images in worship. Uh, we don't have pictures of, of really anything. There's no images that we use in worship. And then I, I touched on and didn't do a great job clarifying this, but our confession also says, or our, our larger catechism also says that we do not make images of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. We don't make images of the Trinity anywhere, not even just in worship, but anywhere. And, and one of the reasons for this, there's a number of reasons, and again, I encourage you, last week I put up this Van Drunen article um, by uh, Mark's fifth cousin, I think that's right, um, uh, David Van Drunen. Um, all the Van Drunens are all related, I, I guess. Um, those Dutch. Um, but he wrote a great article on kind of why, why we care so much about images. And one of these reasons is in the New Testament, the emphasis, the, not even the emphasis, um, um, but it speaks of we walk by faith and not by sight. Right? It's this emphasis on faith, on trusting in the words of Christ. We're not been given pictures of Christ. We're not been given Christ himself in bodily form for us to trust. We've been given the proclamation of the gospel by which the Spirit creates faith and trust in us. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. And that's one of the reasons uh, that we do not use images uh, in worship or images of God at all. Um, and I do want to underscore our view of the regulative principle of worship, um, our view of images, our view of the Sabbath that we're coming to in a few moments. You know, I'm sure you all know some uh, Reformed people who believe these things and they're really angry about it, right? Um, they use this as a hammer then to say, well, every other Christian is inferior. Every other, look how wonderful I am. Look how good of a Christian I am. Uh, and all these other Christians, they just don't get it. And what I really want us to be careful about is as we go through these things, this is not a license. Uh, if, you, if you believe these things, when you come to understand these things, they're rich. And I think they're so biblically based and grounded. And it's a temptation to, when, you, when you understand these things to, to become a jerk to other people who disagree. And that's the last thing I want to be is a jerk. So I apologize and forgive me if I am. I'm, I, we don't want to be a jerk and we don't want to say, well, look, every other Christian is clearly inferior to Redeemer Church. That's not at all what we're saying, but we're saying our biblical convictions drive us to this conclusion. And yes, other people, maybe they haven't thought about it. Maybe they have different conclusions. Um, we can link arm in arms with others who disagree on these matters, um, but we do think they're important as well. So I, I just want to clarify that this isn't now licensed to go say, well, look, every other church that doesn't do these things, they're clearly wrong and they're evil. And, and I don't want to say that at all, um, even though I do disagree. So I just want to get that out there and, and as just so we can be careful uh, as we proceed. So let's turn to section five. And we are still talking about worship and uh, the application of the regulative principle here. We're going to see what parts are there of worship. And I want to kind of skim over five and six, and then we'll get to seven and eight, which is really the meat of today. But I, I want us to pause for a moment um, to look at what do we do in a worship service. And a uh, non-exhaustive list is given to us here. Section five, the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word, and obedience unto God and with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, 
And also, the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. So the name, um, we'll stop there, it names several things specifically. Uh, again, this is not exhaustive because there's other parts. It doesn't even mention prayer here, which is a part of worship, clearly. Um, reading, preaching, and hearing of the word of God, the singing of psalms, and the sacraments. So these are normal, ordinary things that we are called to do as Christians when we gather with the assembly. A couple notes here. It talks about conscionable hearing of the word. What does this conscionable hearing mean? Paying attention, right? Yeah. Be conscious, right? Don't fall off to sleep, even though, you know, I might go on a little too long. Um, don't fall asleep. Conscionable hearing, it's an intentional, engaged listening here. Um, it's a careful, a studied, and attentive listening that we're all called to do uh, when we worship God. Um, and then it also mentions here psalms. So I want to raise the question briefly, what about hymns? It doesn't say we sing hymns, we sing psalms. So what do we do with that? Are we allowed to sing hymns and worship? Hmm. What's that? The hymn has the word of God in it. Right. It's, it's at the very least reflecting biblical truths in it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Very good. So some people will, will look at the confession here. Um, and, and full of conviction, they will say, yes, we only sing psalms and worship. Um, I disagree with that position uh, precisely of what you said, because singing is part of prayer, right? Um, and prayer, we don't say every prayer in Scripture has to be, um, has to be uh, straight from Scripture. Um, but even more than that, this word psalm, at the time of, uh, of the, the Westminster Assembly meeting, the word psalm was used regularly to refer not simply to the canonical psalms in Scripture, but it was referred, it uses, uh, it refers to generally Christian songs. So it does include hymns, it does include other things, and um, so it does include the, the Psalms of David, but it includes more than that. And so we are at Redeemer Church what we call inclusive psalmodists. Psalm, I can't say the word. Psalmist, inclusive psalmody. Um, we include psalms. We think that's very important, but we do believe we can sing other things as well. So there's a lot of debate, and people are very um, uh, have a lot of arguments in favor of exclusive psalmody. I'm not con convinced by them, and as a church, we, we don't practice that. One, two. I don't know if there's any exceptions, but in the Trinity hymnal, the hymns all end with amen. Is that to say that their song is a prayer? Or, I mean, That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, possibly. I've never thought of that before. Very possibly. It would be kind of irreverent to just be like, oh, what a neat musical tag. Right. We'll all just sing amen right. just because. Like, right. Well, no, usually it's a lot more thoughtful. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, regular I like that. No, that's good. I, I think there's I, there's something to that. That's great. Yeah. Um, do you think that given that you gave the word song there a generic inclusive meaning, mm -hmm. could it be also interpreted as not necessarily, or in other words, would it be wrong not to sing biblical songs? That's right. Uh, that's right. I. I think so, actually. I would go so far to say this does require us, and Scripture requires us, to
to sing hymns, or or sorry, to sing psalms. We are required to do that. So I do think, um, according to God's word, if we want to shape our worship according to God's word, we do want to sing psalms. Um, as a part of our worship. And now the question is, do we, what form of psalms do we sing hymns based off of psalms, or does it have to be the actual words of the psalms or metrical psalms? You know, all kinds of questions there. But I want to say generally the principle is that we do want to be singing the psalms in addition to other things. I wouldn't go so far and say, oh, you're an unfaithful, evil church if you don't do that. But I would, I would encourage us, let's sing more psalms. But you think it requires, because the word psalm is in the Bible, and if it is, isn't that the same context of being inclusive? That's right. How do you know when, when you make that reference? Mm-hmm. And just, I believe that we have this in song. Yeah, say, yeah. Just for the sake of argument. Right. So how, how do you know that, that, um, that you have to do that based on biblical exegesis only? Right, right. So, because there are many Reformed churches that are probably um, maybe non-Presbyterian churches that not necessarily, I mean, they... They sing songs, but they don't see that it's mandatory. Right, exactly. Um, and so if you if you have a copy of the Confession that has footnotes, you'll see the, the, um, the assembly uh, references Colossians 3, where it says this, Let the word of God, of Christ, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, some would argue that those are all three references to the Psalter. Um, I, I, I disagree with that. But the point is, I, I think reference to Psalms there does refer to, at least in part, the Davidic Psalms. So Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, these things are what we're called to sing um, and encourage one another with this in corporate worship. Um, and so I do think that's the biblical text does explicitly say we sing Psalms in worship. So um, again, I would, I would encourage, you know, my brethren, especially Reformed brethren who aren't uh, convinced of this, to, to do this more. I think this is a very, very good practice, and I'm glad we do it at Redeemer. I saw another hand, um, I, th- I believe, or we can... Yeah, it was me, but it was through text. It was what? Okay, great. Yep, Colossians 3, great. Thank you. All right. Um, so these are the ordinary parts. Um, so, uh, let's see. The Word of God... Uh, singing and sacraments, and then there's others we could add to that prayer, etc. Um, I will briefly say, because I raised it last week, the question of, of music comes up, right? No, at the time of the confession, when it was written, um, no church, no Reformed church used any instruments whatsoever. So all this singing was a cappella, and that was the way from then to the Reformation, and was um, a, a longstanding tradition in church history. And people will say, Scripture in the New Testament does not command us does not give us license to use instruments in worship. And so the question is, well, what do you do, Redeemer Church, about this? Uh, why do you have a piano? And my, my quick uh, response would be, I, I do think it's appropriate to use instruments in worship, but as what we'd say a circumstance of worship, not as an element of worship. Um, in the Old Testament, a trumpet was, uh, God commanded a trumpet to be blasted by the priests. And that trumpet, trumpet blast was itself an element of worship. But today, the playing of the piano is not an element of worship, but it is a circumstance insofar as it is designed to assist the congregation in their singing. So we use instruments to assist the congregation to help us sing. It's not in and of itself an element of worship, but it is to assist us, the congregation, the primary instrument is the voice of God's people. And so it is to support us 
in that. So that's my, my quick defense of music worship. Not that anybody's saying we should uh, get rid of the piano, but, but some would. Some um, Reformed brothers and sisters do believe that and are convinced of that. Uh, and I, I applaud their conviction. I just don't, don't, um, don't agree with that. So is that leaving the door open for other instruments to assist? In my view, yes. Yeah. Yeah. As long as, again, it's designed to assist and it's not becoming a, a focal point and not itself um, um, an element of worship. Yes, Sandra. Right. Right. That's right. Right. Yeah, it was interesting. The the Westminster Assembly part of their work was they put together a psalter for the church. Um, there were other psalters, but they put together a new psalter, and it actually included uh, extra canonical materials as well. So it wasn't just um, biblical psalms. It had other material in it as well. They put together a psalter, um, and it, that tradition lasted for a long time. The first book printed in America, do you know what that was? Does anybody know? The, the Bay Psalm book. It's the first book printed in America, the Bay Psalm book. The, the Puritans printed a, a psalter. Um, for uh, in America. Um, maybe you can fact check me on that. There's maybe it's, I don't know, the first something happened in America with the Bay Psalm book. Um, and so um, it's been an important part of Christian worship, not just reform, but Christian worship uh, for a long time. And I don't know when it first really changed where it fell heavily on the other side of hymns instead of psalms. I don't know historically when that happened. I will say a lot of hymns were written in the 1700s. And then I, I would I would hazard a guess it had something to do with the first and especially the second Great Awakening when things started to change. Um, but I, I don't know historically. That's a great historical point. I've been through churches that have gone through the hymns to choruses transition. And with the old, yes. and there's this uh, pamphlet, there's this sheet of paper that they'll pass around. Um, they'll say, they'll put up a bunch of arguments against these new forms of music. And mm-hmm. they'll say it's not biblical, it's, it's right. going through all these different things, not as much rich content. And, and then it'll come out, oh, this was passed around the 1800s, replacing, I think, the Psalter yeah. with hymns. That's right. And then they're having the same arguments, and then they're having the same arguments again, but instead of having a, a more biblical framework for saying, oh, we should, we should sing hymns instead of uh, these more modern choruses, it's more of just like, oh, this, these have more rich content. Well, why should you say rich content? Well, because I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's usually it is. It's a less accessible. People say. Right. That's right. Say, that's right. People say hymns are less accessible. They're not. People don't understand them today. They're, mm-hmm. The language is archaic. That's right. Reach people where they are. You have to sing for us. Yeah, that's right. And w- those arguments are, you know, as you said, are, are prominent today. And we have to go back to what is worship. And worship is not simply something I do to feel good about myself. It's something God commands us to do. And singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, there's some meat and some gravitas to what we sing. And yeah, I'll say, yeah, it does take some work. Yeah, maybe we do need to practice singing at home more and family worship or whatnot. Maybe we do need to learn these better before we come to worship. Um, but even if we don't know the worship, we do need to, co- before coming to worship, we do need to concentrate best we can. I know it's hard with little kids. I you know, understand uh, firsthand experience. But, um, but yes, it is hard work and it's not all about me. And that's where we go back to what is worship? Why are we doing this? This is about the glory of God, the creator of heaven and earth 
and not simply about um, what I want um, and my own desires. Um, I want to briefly say in, chat, in section, uh, section five here, um, there are other um, extraordinary, and, and extraordinary doesn't mean, um, you know, special or over the top. It just means used on special occasions uh, as different elements of worship. It talks about oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon special occasions. Um, oaths and vows are the chapter we're supposed to be talking about today. And here's all, here's all I want to say. Oaths are solemn promises you make to other people in worship, whether public worship or whether in, uh, in a sense of, of solemn personal worship before God. Um, and it is made in the presence of God. So these are what we call oaths, according to the confession. Vows are solemn promises you make to God out of thankfulness uh, for his mercy or his granting of a petition, and it is an act of worship. Um, and the seriousness of the oaths and vows are reinforced. Uh, monastical vows of singleness and poverty, etc., are, quote, superstitious and sinful snares. Um, and it's important to note here that the confession of vows are not bargains you make with God, but it's a desire to worship him through sacrifice because of what he has done for you. So oaths are promises you make to others. Um, we call, we talk about wedding vows. Well, technically under the confession, they're oaths. Okay, whatever. We don't talk about the, the terms with the same precision they did at the time. Um, oaths, vows you make to somebody else in the presence of God. And then vows are promises you make to God of something you will do uh, for him because of his faithfulness to you. Again, it's not a, it's not a, a tit for tat kind of a, um, a bargain with God, but it's a, a desire to worship him. And so that's how the confession lays out those vows. All right, we've done chapter 22, back to 21. <laughs> okay, section six of chapter 21. Um, where and with whom do we worship God? And we're not going to read it. I just want to make a few points. Um, the location of worship doesn't matter. We don't go to Jerusalem to worship God uh, anymore. We don't direct our churches toward Jerusalem either, uh, as the Israelites were required to do. As they were um, outside of Jerusalem, they would face Jerusalem when they prayed and worshiped. We don't do that. Uh, that is not a part of New Testament worship. Uh, so the location and the direction does not matter. And then it talks about three different contexts for worship. One is called secret worship by yourself, in your closet, um, you before the Lord. Um, also with your family or household, call this family worship. This is, ought to be a regular thing done in every Christian household. And then public worship uh, is the third, public worship. And that's mostly what we have in mind as we've been thinking about this as we gather with the saints. Um, I will, um, uh, last spring, uh, Jim Parkin taught a class on family worship that was very good. And so you can go back on our archives to listen to that for more nuts and bolts and specifics. I don't want to get into that today. It's a worthy topic all on its own. Okay, section seven, here we go. Section seven of chapter 21 of the confession, and I've spent 23 of my 45 minutes already. Um, section seven introduces the idea of the Sabbath day. And we'll read a section at a time and I'll make a few comments. As it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. So let's pause there. The law of nature, nature itself reveals to us, as we saw earlier in section one of this chapter, that God exists and he ought to be worshiped. So we see in nature uh, itself that we ought to worship that God, that there ought to be time set apart to worship God. Um, everybody knows this is what the confession is saying. Everybody is a worshiper, as many philosophers have argued. 
Uh, let's go to the next phrase. So in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual command, binding all men's, men in all ages, God hath particularly appointed one day in seven for, seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. Pause there. So now we see in special revelation in God's word, he has called us to set apart one whole day in seven to be kept holy unto God. So general revelation, we see, yes, we ought to worship God at some point in time. Special revelation shows us we worship God one whole day out of seven. This is from God's word that we see this. Let's keep, let's keep going. Um, we're fleshing out a little bit more information with each, uh, with each um, uh, phrase here. Which, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, was the last day of the week. Okay, so now we're saying the Sabbath was, from creation to Christ's resurrection, the Sabbath was on the seventh day of the week, our Saturday. And let me just read for you Exodus 20. This is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 8, where it lays this out for us and grounds this reality in creation because God worked for six days to create heaven and earth, and then he rested on the seventh. Therefore, the seventh day was set apart as holy. So this is Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For, for in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God commanded from creation, and we'll come to what happened at Christ's resurrection, beginning of creation, the seventh day was an entire day set apart for the worship of God. And so now let's, let's go to the next section. We'll, we'll open up for comments here in a moment. <clears throat> so the beginning of the world, the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed unto the first day of the week which in scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. So the point here that's being made is that the Sabbath until Christ's resurrection was the seventh day of the week. But now, after Christ's resurrection, it is the first day of the week. And we see this in scripture as immediately after the resurrection, immediately Christians began worshiping on the first day of the week. Almost without explanation, almost like, well, this is duh, this is what we do. This is the day Christ rose from the dead. They began worshiping on that day. And, um, and, and we see this pattern through the New Testament. We see it referenced in Paul uh, through Acts. And we see John talking about it again in Revelation. So we see this pattern immediately happening in Scripture. And one of the theological reasons for this is the Sabbath initially as we saw in creation, the Sabbath was this promise of eternal rest. The, the Sabbath stood for this promise for Adam and Eve in the garden that if they, if they obeyed God, they would, after six days of working, they would enter this eternal Sabbath rest that God provided for his people, for those who obeyed him. And so it highlighted what we call the covenant of works. And if you don't know what that is, if you weren't here when we talked about it, don't worry about it. It's well, no, you should think about it. Um, but I'm not, I'm not, we're not able to dive into that today. But for those of you who know what I'm talking about, um, 
the covenant of works had the image of the Sabbath as the hope and the promise tied together with things like the, the tree of life and other images that we see in Genesis 1. So the Sabbath stood for this principle that working and obeying God faithfully led to the Sabbath rest. And it stayed that way all through the Old Testament because Israel was reminded over and over of their failure, their inability, how they failed to obey God perfectly. And the six days of work leading to rest reminded them they cannot achieve rest on their own. And so it happened. We finally had the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel who came and who was the faithful one and who now has entered that Sabbath rest. And so now what he has given to us is Sabbath rest. And that's why now it's on the first day of the week. Yes, it's the day of the resurrection as well. But theologically, we live the six days of work in the world out of the Sabbath rest. We begin with the Sabbath rest. We begin with the work of Christ. It's not this Old Testament typology of working and failing and, and yearning for the Sabbath. No, we have the Sabbath in Christ. And so now if it, the day of the week is showing us the sufficiency of what Christ has done. And it's a beautiful, glorious thing. We recently, I had, I'm on a committee of the General Assembly of our, of our denomination, and we review minutes of presbyteries. I know people think it sounds crazy, but it's a blast. Trust me. <laughs> and, and one presbytery found that a, a minister, he took exception to this part of the confession, saying, you know, I don't think it really matters what day of the week, as long as you have one day of Sabbath. And our committee said, no. That's not right, because Scripture points us to the finished work of Christ, and that's why the Sabbath is now the first day. And we live our lives out of this reality. And we said, Presbytery, you can't do this. You've got to fix this. You've got to you know, fix it and get back to us. So we'll, I'll let you know in May what they say when they get back to us. But, um, but this is an important point, and we don't think about it. We worship on the day of resurrection. Every Sunday is Easter for the church. Because this is the day that Christ rose from the dead. And in his new eschatological life, we live. So small little point here the confession makes. There's so much theology behind it. Um, very brief, one or two comments because we need to go to the last section. One, two. So what would you say to somebody, this is a classic thing that comes up, um, who is a nurse and has to work on a Sunday or, or whatever yeah, yeah. profession, has to work on a Sunday, We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Yep, that's the next section. Yep, we'll come back to that. That was my exact. Great. Those who are in service, yes. Patients, you know, your policemen. That's right. How do you address that? Do they need another separate day? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. We'll come back to that in a moment. Yeah. The theology question. Yes. Is there still. Typology is maybe not the right word, but it is the Christian Sabbath currently as we practice it now. You can sort of say, like, well, it originally pointed to Christ and the rest that he mm -hmm. would bring. Right. He does bring that. Mm -hmm. So if we think of, like, soteriology as, like, the end game. Right, right. It, now it's all over. Right. Why, maybe some people think one of the Sabbath principle itself is kind of, like, done. That's right. Because Christ That's right. conquered and we are now saved in him. But it maybe doesn't acknowledge that there's still more to the story. There's yeah. still is a final consummation. So would you say the right, Sabbath right. now is still, there's still theological richness to the Sabbath even now, even though it has a certain fulfillment. Right, it right. It does. It does still point forward in that the Sabbath 
now is a foretaste of heaven and we will enter an eternal Sabbath. We're still waiting for that. We haven't reached that yet. We have not been brought into the new heavens and the new earth yet. And so you're right. It is a foretaste. It is a foreshadowing of more to come. And there is that argument too, uh, the typology argument that Christ fulfilled it. So therefore there's no more Sabbath any longer. Um, and, the, and the confession speaks clearly against that. And I'm not sure I want to go into all that now. A final, final comment here. That's right. Could you speak briefly to that verse and the recognition of a day? That's right. As opposed to this eternal rest. Right, right. And that's that's getting at some of the things Greg highlighted here is what does the day now signify? Is this merely a um, a creaturely day for physical rest? Or is this a day that that envisions that eternal rest that Hebrews speaks of? And I would say it's it's a little bit of both, but primarily it's a foreshadowing of that eternal rest. Um, and there's a lot there and a lot of debate and discussion on that passage. And so maybe it's most appropriate for us, Mary Alice, to talk about that later. Um, but that, that is a key text in talking about what does the Sabbath mean? Because there's debate. Does, when it talks about Sabbath, is it speaking eternally, eschatologically, or is it speaking speaking of the day of the week. And there's some debate there. Um, so I don't want to open all that because I do want us to hit this last section um, of the confession, section eight in chapter 21. So we're talking about now the practice of the Sabbath. We have it established the first day of the week is the Sabbath day. What do we do now on that day? The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord. We'll pause there. This day is for God, not for me. This day is ultimately set apart for God, the worship of God, which, yes, there's great benefit in that for me. But it is set wholly unto the Lord. The character of the day is one that is a holy rest in God. Okay, so the Sabbath is this day when men, after due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, pause there. So it talks about a preparation for the Lord's day, a preparation of your heart, but also preparation of your affairs as well. What, what does it say? Um, what's, what's the word here? Common affairs. Ordering of your common affairs beforehand. Um, preparing before we come to worship. That means getting rest. Unless you're providentially hindered. It means um, filling up. I know, because the kids wake up every Saturday night in the middle of the night. Every time. Um, filling up your car with gas so you don't have to do it on your way to church in the morning. It means thinking about what am I going to wear tomorrow? Maybe if, if for your household, picking out clothes is just a, a terrible fight with the kids, you get those out the night before. And so you don't have the fight on Sunday morning. Uh, there's all kinds of things that we do to prepare our, 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 our affairs for the Sabbath day. So there's a preparation. Uh, we do not only observe on the Sabbath a holy rest. Again, this holy rest is emphasized. It's a day of rest unto God. It's not, often we say a Sabbath is a day of rest. And what we mean by that is physical rest. And that's not the primary point here that the divines are bringing out. The Sabbath is not primarily physical rest. It is holy rest. It's a spiritual rest for God. So it is a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments 
and recreations. Okay, so this is the central part. So it's a rest from these things, but we're also to do certain things. So this is the negative. What we do not do, we rest from these things, from your own works, words and thoughts about worldly employments and recreations. So what this means is while you're sitting in worship, you should not be creating your shopping list for the week. You shouldn't be writing out that email to your boss while you're trying to take the Lord's Supper. This is a day of rest from those things. God's saying, don't worry about those things today. Let them, work, let them you know, deal with them tomorrow, or if you must, deal with them the day before. But this is a day where you get to take a break from that. How many of us just say, I'm so busy, I don't have any time to stop. I don't, how many times I've heard people, I just don't have time to read a good Christian book. Well, God's given us an entire day in seven to do that, to rest from our worldly employments. And it's not speaking pure, merely, merely about jobs here, um, but also with work around the home, with all kinds of other employment, things that we busy ourselves with for six days. If you remember from uh, the Ten Commandments, six days you shall do all your work, but the seventh day is a rest unto God, a Sabbath unto God. So we work from uh, worldly employments and recreations. So now this recreations word, oh, we're getting into a can of worms. What does recreations mean? Um, and that's a big debate. And um, there's so much history behind, behind this that I can't go into. Um, I know, I know, right? It, this is an entire Sunday school on what are recreations. We want a list. That's right. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's what we can't do. Thank you for saying that. That's what we don't do. Uh, we don't create a list. Like the Pharisees create a list of you can only walk so many paces on a Sunday. You can only do this on Sunday. We're not saying that. And as a Redeemer Church, I, I appreciate the stance of our session. We're not here saying, okay, here's the Sabbath. You can only do these things and we're going to check up on you. And No, we're saying we're calling you, every member, to be faithful to Scripture on this. And if you have questions and what's wisdom and you know, there's all kinds of things, sure, certainly uh, elders and deacons, will, other believers are, are happy to talk about these things. But we're not here setting uh, the, 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 the clear requirements. If you do these things, you are, you are obeying the Sabbath. Because ultimately here, part of this is it's a day of worship and you can't command somebody to worship if they're hell-bent against it. And so, but there's all these other, uh, these other external things um, that we're not legislating for you, but we're calling you to be faithful to this. I read that article that you, that you posted on that last week, and it ends with saying, well, we don't have to be like Laura Ingalls Wilder. That's right. And saying you have to, Almanzi, to sit, sit there all day. Kids, That's right. Kids need to exercise or else they won't be able to pay attention. That's right. And so they, they classify children running around as a work of necessity. That's right. And so it, it does kind of get into, well, what can you classify as a what? And what is specifically fellowship? And mm -hmm. what types of fellowship and, and getting together as families and That's right. Yeah. Is, is good and is, is helpful mm -hmm. towards mm -hmm. that. That's right. I will say briefly, the historical point, what is a recreation? Does this mean anything you do to like enjoy yourself? No. Um, the, the background of this is that the King of England, I don't have all my details, I think it was King James, uh, issued what he called the Book of Sports because he went up to Scotland. He saw everybody was angry and upset and there was tension between Scotland and England. And he goes, well, I know why all those Scottish people are upset because they're not allowed to do anything on Sunday. So he wrote this book called the Book of Sports to tell all of his Scottish um, uh, citizens, this is what you ought to do on Sunday so you'll be a happier 
commonwealth. And so he called them to do all these community events and sports and games and all kinds of things. And this is what they were responding to and saying, no, 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 we're not called to do these big community you know, events. We don't go to, and this gets really controversial, we don't play organized sports on Sundays. We don't do these things. Uh, we, don't, we don't do these things because what's, what those are doing is, is detracting from the point of this day. And that's to worship and glorify God. And so anyway, you can talk personally what you, you can talk with me about my own personal view of what recreation is. And, and you're right. There's a, there's a fine line. What is recreation? What is necessity? Let's, let's go to, let's get necessity on the table. Read this last phrase. But this day is taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So a couple things, necessity, things that you must do, you can do, right? You've got to get food on your table for your family for lunch and dinner and breakfast. So that's a work of necessity. That's okay. Now let's think about how we can alleviate the work that we have to do on Sunday. Maybe prepare on Saturday night or maybe do something very simple on Sunday. Um, But where's that line? We can't legislate that for you. You need to think about this. Seek to honor the Lord in this. Um, Those who work in healthcare professions, we do believe um, it is good that we can dial 911 on a Sunday and EMS professionals can come and save somebody's life on Sunday. Yes. So we think doctors and nurses working on Sunday is a necessity and it's a good thing. So they do work on the Sabbath. Uh, Same with policemen and and other um, uh, employments uh, like that, that are necessity to individuals and to the common good. Um, and then the question is, well, how big is necessary? Because you can make an argument that anything is necessary, right? I've got to go in and work on Sunday because my report's due on Monday. And if I don't, I'm going to get fired. It's necessary. Is it or not? That's a hard question. Um, and you must yourself make that call um, and determine what that is. Um, and mercy. This is a great day for mercy. A great day for um, fellowshipping with others and and. and and um, exercising charity and love towards your neighbors, whether that means inviting people to your home, whether that means going to the nursing home and visiting with people, whether that means serving at a soup kitchen or whatever. These things, these works of mercy are good on the Sabbath day. It adorns the, the worship of God with doing acts of mercy. And of course, that it is to be taken up in the day is to be taken up in public and private exercises of his worship. And we do this at Redeemer. Part of the way we encourage the keeping of the Sabbath at Redeemer is by having morning and evening worship. Because what this does is it frames the entire day as a day of worship, as one of, of, of offering yourself to God, and one of bringing, singing praises to God. And we don't believe that um, worshiping twice on Sunday is um, absolutely required by scripture. And if you don't come to evening service, you're in sin. But we do think it's a really, really good thing for you to do. And we do think it is a wonderful way to honor the Lord with the whole day because what happens when you, after you go home from the morning service, if you don't have anything else the rest of the day, it's like, oh great, I've got the rest of the day to do what I want. But if you know I'm going to be back at Redeemer at 5 p.m., you realize, oh wait, this day is not about me. This day is not about me getting all those chores done around the house. This is a day that I can go and get my kids for their nap, or I can, I can go read for a little bit in the afternoon. Maybe I do take a holy nap of some kind for the afternoon. Some would say a work of necessity, right? Um, 
And then I, I'm prepared, I'm rejuvenated, I'm ready to go back to worship. And it sets apart this whole day, a day of this wonderful day of, of thinking about the Lord, of praising Him. And I have to say personally, in my own experience, I didn't grow up going to worship morning and evening on the Sabbath. Um, and it wasn't until uh, I went to seminary that I finally was a part of a church that did that. And I have to say, my, my own personal spiritual growth um, was, was just through the roof during that time of, of first practicing of the Sabbath, of morning and evening worship. It was such a bomb to the soul. And I, Sinclair Ferguson has this phrase. Um, I'm, you've, I've probably said it before. You've probably heard it. Um, in the morning when we worship God, um, it's, it's like the world is being washed off of us. And so when we come back in the evening, it's far more sweet. And I, I agree with that. Just experientially, I love the evening service. There's something really sweet about it. And it's just wonderful to come back and end the day worshiping the Lord. And so that is my encouragement to all of you to consider coming back in the evening. Consider being a part of the church morning and evening. And it's a wonderful time of fellowship. And sometimes, especially when it's warmer and nicer, um, people will stay around for an hour afterwards and kids are running around like crazy. And it's just a wonderful time of being with God's people. Um, so I will implore you to think about this. I encourage you to come and worship God morning and evening because the whole day, as the confession says, is to be taken up in public and private exercises of worship and duties of necessity and mercy. So I'm not going to tell you, can you watch football on Sunday? I'm going to leave that to you to think about. Does watching football, does that hinder or does that help my practice of worshiping the Lord on this Sabbath day that he set apart for him? I can't say it's wrong to turn on the, the football game, but if you're ordering your whole day around it, I think that's a problem. I think you need to think about that. Um, so anyway, before I get myself in too much trouble, um, yeah. Right, right. The next week, and so you have this like church week. The idea isn't like the theological understanding isn't there. It's just a burden of a time, right, you know. Right. And you're out if you're not there. If you don't go to the potluck, you're not in. Right. And so this is really giving me like, wow, okay. As a busy household, mm -hmm. this this focus of a duty and right. a, you know and a blessing to be able to say, okay, if I can't go to Wednesday. Whatever women's study, not those are all beneficial things. Right, but right. Not the, the same. That's right. That's right. To what Sunday evening and exactly. Morning. So that has been a. Yeah, it sets the priority for the church. Yeah, we offer all kinds of wonderful things, men's groups and women's groups and, you know, uh, community groups. But that's not primary. You should not be going to those if you're not worshiping with God's people on Sunday. Okay, I, I do want you to go to this thing, so don't hear me saying. But th these are good, but what are we called to? We're called to worship God one day in seven. And the other stuff is gravy. It's great. But worship the Lord one day in seven. Okay, one, did I see another hand over here? One, two, and we may have to wrap Just up there. Really, I remember the first time I went to the, because I didn't grow up with the morning evening, and so the first time I went to the Redeemer evening and listened to the sermon, and I'm like, well, this is a full-throated full -throated sermon. This right. is not some kind of quick, oh, hey, here's an abbreviated sermon. Right, right. I just want to say I appreciate the fact that the elders of both types, I mean, this is a full contact, this is a full That's right. service. That's right, it's it is. Sort of quick, take a punch and move on. So, yep, anyway, yep. So. Yeah, thank you. I was just going to make a comment. I think this is a very practical chapter, and it has a lot of layers, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of things that we left for an answer. We don't have time. Yes. It may be worthwhile, I think, going over and just taking extra time, because even though you're saying particularly, you know, we don't want to get into details, we're going to leave it up to you, 
we have to admonish each other as a body, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's mm -hmm. so many differences right. of opinions, right. how we interpret that, we can't really admonish each other right. effectively. Right. So I think even though I agree that we cannot be like a legalistic, <clears throat> there has to be some type of practical guidance as how to actually do this. Yeah. So keeping silent and saying, you know, this is what the Bible says, leave it up to you to interpret, it's a little complicated. Yeah, no, you're right. Maybe worthwhile. So my, my point would say, my, my, I appreciate that point. I would say if you come to morning and evening worship, 90% of the questions will take care of themselves because that's going to change and reframe the day for you. Um, but you're right. We, we do. Uh, there are a lot of details that are worth discussing that we don't have time for today. Final comment. That's right. That's right. That's good. I like that. Right. That's right. I love it. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we do give you thanks that you have given us this day for our benefit as we turn to the triune God and worship you. We pray that you would in, in, indeed instruct us and feed us and show us Christ, that you would make us more after his image and that we would glorify you all the more. We thank you for this day. Give us wisdom to know how to understand these things and put them to, into practice in our lives. We need your help, oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.